Tokyo, Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, Primordial Ghoul and Ice7. In addition, we're joined by Professor Paul Ehrlich, who will discuss the dominant animal. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And your world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok Science Show. I'm Frank Lang. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? I feel like a winner. You know, I think we're all a winner today. <laughs> yeah, science wins. <laughs> Was science actually running? Uh, well, you know, in a form of the one. Uh, the one has represented science at, I think, the world on a very good level. Yes, the world is proud. Actually, I'm in Japan right now, and uh, people here are pretty ecstatic. I think science is ecstatic, and why shouldn't it be? <laughs> Well, he asked the right questions, and I think most scientists I've talked to have a pretty good confidence that he's going to try to change things for the better. You know, the, we, we actually never actually endorsed a candidate during this race. <laughs> I thought about radio regulations. Well, I guess post-talk, we'll endorse the candidacy of Barack Obama now that he's won. <laughs> <laughs> we were on the right track the whole time, right? <laughs> so what we'll have to do is we'll have to go back and re-edit the old episodes and put our endorsement in. <laughs> Uh, well, it's quite a celebration here in Chicago, obviously, and Baraki lives just a few blocks, actually, from where I am, so it's quite a pleasant surprise having the President of the United States as a neighbor. So, uh, you've gone trick-or-treating around his neighborhood? Well, he was trick-or-treating. He didn't stop by my place, though. <laughs> I felt a little disappointed. I had all this candy lined up for him, but hopefully, uh, hopefully he'll have a lot of candy for science when he takes office. I'm looking forward to it. I feel a little disappointed that we're going to be uh, getting rid of George Bush now because who will we uh, start ragging on in the Grokatron 5000? <laughs> we can't make fun of him anymore, right? He's been the staple of our Grokatron 5000 for what, eight years now? <laughs> Uh-oh, does this mean our show's going to fall apart because George is gone? <laughs> I, I think he was the linchpin <laughs> of the show. I, you, know. <laughs> you can't have good without evil, right? Because how will you know what is good without evil? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I guess we'll just have to uh, milk it for what it's worth until he leaves office. <laughs> 77 more days to go. And counting. All right, well, the one is in. Whoa, it's a number. <laughs> Not a letter. Uh, very cool. Well, congratulations to Barack. Uh, we're proud of his accomplishment. Hey, I'm proud of you, Barack. <laughs> uh, but you know what I'm even prouder of is science. Oh, yeah, that, that just stays eternal, right? <laughs> Presidents come and go, but science stays. In fact, it just That's- gets bigger. Science is always on trial. <laughs> like everything else should be, I guess. Cool. All right, and uh, speaking of high pressures and extreme conditions, it looks like another form of ice has been found. Really? Uh, not quite ice 9, but it's called ice 7. So will it freeze the Earth and turn us into a winter wonderland? Uh, not exactly, but it could be a superconductor under the conditions that these scientists have been simulating them in. So a group of researchers at Livermore Labs has shown that water or ice at pressures over uh, 90 gigapascals, when they melt, what they've observed is that it's like a superionic lattice where some of the molecules actually break apart. And what you have is these hydrogen ions just moving around as ions, and the heavier oxygen just sit there oscillating. It could be a, a form of a superconductor or a semiconductor, but with you know vastly different electronic and chemical properties that we are uh, familiar with. 
it could directly be observed in the middle of a planet deep deep where the pressures are extremely high but so far they only simulate this on computer and this is what they are predicting using the chemical models so well you know just uh get 90 gigapascal uh bike pump could get that in arizona maybe yeah i think so um i'll rely on barack to uh, supply one for every household in america <laughs> Yes, he can. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So it was. It comes out of my very favorite journal, actually. Uh, you're kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences. Penas. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Professor Paul Ehrlich will join us to discuss the dominant animal. So stay tuned. to the Grox Science Show. Well, the human species through evolution has emerged as the dominant life form on the planet, so much so that our natural abilities have enabled us to transform the environment to suit our needs. But as is well known, the costs are considerable. What can be done to stem the tide of these deleterious effects? Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Professor Paul Ehrlich. Professor Ehrlich is the Bing Professor of Population Studies and Professor of Biological Sciences at Stanford University member of the National Academies of Sciences and recipient of numerous honors, including the Crawford Prize. He is the author of several scientific papers and popular works on the subject. His latest book, The Dominant Animal, Human Evolution and the Environment, co-authored with his wife, Anne Ehrlich, examines these issues for a general audience. Professor Ehrlich, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, nice to be here. Well, it's really our pleasure, and I think this is really a very fascinating book, The Dominant Animal. I'm curious, though, how have we as humans become the dominant animal on the planet? Well, there are, of course, a lot of reasons. One is that we went up into the bushes and hunted insects with our fingers and became very good at, at manipulating things with our hands and became sight animals because those of us who tried to smell the next branch of our ancestors didn't do as well as those who spotted it. And that gave us, as a social animal, a, a great opportunity. We came down out of the trees. We developed very large brains. And probably the single biggest, most important thing we did was develop language with syntax, which allows us, has allowed us to build a body of non-genetic information, that is, our culture, that far exceeds the information stored in our genes. And it's been by manipulating our culture and developing technologies and so on that we have become the dominant animal on the planet. We have done much better technologically than we have done ethically. In other words, our incredible changing of the world in the last few hundred years has not been matched by similar improvements in uh, how we treat each other and how we treat our environment. In other words, the, the ethical issues would be very familiar to Plato, but he'd be stunned at a computer. You mentioned this cultural evolution. Is it governed by the same forces that guide our biological evolution? Well, one thing appears to be selection. Among uh, We've been actually started to work on cultural evolution, and it does appear, for instance, that, that parts of the culture that are tested immediately against the environment evolve at different rates from ones that aren't. So we unfortunately, although we understand genetic evolution quite well, uh, we don't have the similar understanding of cultural evolution. We don't understand, for instance, why with all the talk about the hideous problems facing us from climate disruption, nothing at all anywhere in the world is being significant as being done about it. And that's an interesting cultural question that we can't yet answer. Mm -hmm. 
you think the current society is just an inevitable product of whatever forces are actually guiding our cultural evolution? Well, I don't know if it's inevitable because we do manage to change things. In other words, the uh, to go back to the ethical side, when I was a kid, lynchings were very common down south, and you would never see a person with dark skin in, say, a, a TV show or if you had TV shows then or in the movies unless they were in a subservient position. We've changed our race relations over the last half century. We've changed the position of women. So I don't see any reason in theory why we can't change the way we treat each other and our environment. And of course, we talking about the racial situation. We have changed, not far enough, but we have changed how we treat each other. When I was 10 years old, the idea there could be a dark-skinned president of the United States would have been absolutely insane. Of course, skin color is only related to solar radiation. It's got nothing to do with brains or personality or anything like that. Well, we certainly have come a long way. Yes, we have, but not far enough. Mm. I'm curious, uh, what is actually required to guide evolution of our culture in terms of addressing a lot of these problems? You're asking me for a solution to the most (laughs) hideous problem the world has ever faced because we're now faced with a collapse of a global civilization. But I think there's a a list of things that absolutely have to be done. We have to bring the – we've intervened so successfully in in, in reducing – death rates, that we absolutely have to go further in reducing birth rates. But that's a relatively easy task in the sense that the main thing we have to do is give more education to women, give them more job opportunities, give them the means to control their reproduction. It's already started in some parts of the world, and eventually, hopefully within the next 50 years, we'll get to the point where the global population is shrinking, which is what it should do, because it's much too large to be supported on a permanent basis now. We've got to change our attitudes on consumption. That's going to be a lot tougher, but the reason the U.S. is the most overpopulated nation in the world isn't that we have the most people. We have, we're third, number three in how many people, but each one of us consumes on average so much that our impact on our vital life support systems is much larger than any other nation. And I could get down the whole list, but I just bore you to death. Uh, well, you know, a lot of these factors you would think might control themselves. I mean, obviously overpopulation would be a problem, but as resources are outstripped, birth rates should go down naturally, wouldn't you? Well, worse yet, death rates will go up. In other words, the problem is people say, well, we can't change our lifestyle. You know, the the lifestyle in the United States where we're 4.5% of the world's people and consume 25% of the uh, uh, resources is not negotiable. Well, the point is you can't negotiate with nature. Either we'll change our ways or they're going to be changed for us in ways we don't like at all. Uh, obviously, a major problem that global society as a whole is facing is changes to the environment that are happening. What really needs to be done there? Well, number one, of course, is to get off the fossil fuel standard. Everybody, every scientist knows it. For instance, every scientist and every economist knows that gasoline should be much more expensive, not cheaper. It shouldn't be cheaper than bottled water because we there's so many effects of the petroleum economy that we're living on are just going to kill us. In other words, invading Iraq to get their oil was a really dumb idea. Even if we got the oil, it would be like if we had a food problem invading Iraq to get it cyanide so we could eat the cyanide and kill ourselves. We already have found more than enough pumpable oil to take the, uh, the atmosphere to a point where we have great difficulty growing food for anybody. And we're already seeing serious effects from the burning of coal and oil. So the idea that we should be drilling for oil 
somewhere or continuing to build coal-fired power plants around the world is absolutely insane. We've got to take the subsidies off of the fossil fuels and put them on to getting us a primarily a solar hydrogen economy, which will take quite a while to do. But if we have the right kind of mobilization, we could even meet Al Gore's goals there. So the number one thing in the environment is changing our energy system. The number two, number one, that is on top of, of course, reducing the number of people as soon as possible because every person you add to the population disproportionately adds to the greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere and the general wrecking of our life support systems. Disproportionately, the next two billion people are going to do much more damage than the last two billion because we've already picked the low-hanging fruit. Uh, part of it, of course, uh, requires a lot of political will. I mean, how much is choosing the right governance to actually carry Ab- out these plans? Absolutely, absolutely essential. Uh, although uh, the problem is that the bar was set so low by the Bush administration, actually buried deep in the soil, that the idea that somehow we can fix the world up by making the right political decision at this point is wrong. But there's not a prayer in hell of fixing the world up if we don't make the right political decision this time. Uh, You argue in the book that the current system of uh, nation-states might be the problem. Well, it's clear to everybody, when you look at problems like climate disruption, collapse of fisheries, spreading of toxic substances from pole to pole that are already showing signs, for instance, of causing all kinds of problems with animal populations, and, for instance, many sub-Arctic villages now have twice as many female human babies as male babies and so on. All, All of this stuff has to be dealt with and dealt with soon and dealt with in ways that are hard to imagine today, but it's global. In other words, if we stop doing it, everybody else continues doing it, it's not going to work. People have to remember that nation states are a recent invention. You know, we're a species that goes back 100 to 200,000 years, and we've only had nations for something like a few thousand of it, and modern nation states are only about 200 years old. And they're not the ideal way to run a planet when you have many problems that are planet-wide. And so we should be having a discussion everywhere about how to reorganize ourselves so that we can maintain a sustainable society on the entire planet. And we're not having that discussion. Everybody just assumes that nation-states are the final point of human political evolution, which is obviously nonsensical. What do you think about our current prognosis and what direction we need to head in in order to reach a more sustainable society? Well, I think the current prognosis is fairly grim, but could become uh, a lot better if, for example, we got a government that was not trying to wreck science, but was actually supporting it and trying to get people much more broadly educated on these issues. We've been pushing, uh, Ann and I and Don Kennedy, who uh, used to be the head of the FDA and the editor of science, have been pushing an idea called the Millennium Assessment of Human Behavior, in which we would get the kind of discussion that you and I are now having in every country, broad in broad forums where people actually discussed what are our global problems, how are we going to avoid war with our neighbors, you know, what is the kind of lifestyle we want to leave. In the U.S., when I came to Stanford 50 years ago, we had a pathetic salary, but it was still enough for my wife, Anne, to stay home with our daughter, Lisa, until she went to school. And nowadays, every single young professional couple I know feels that both people have to work to stay above water. And is that an improvement? We've had five-fold increase in our gross domestic product, and most people feel the satisfaction of life has gone down in the last 50 years, not gone up. So we've got to ask the question, in the current financial, quote, crisis, end quote, should we be trying to fire up the same old machine, the, you know, the, the capitalism for the poor and socialism for the rich 
system that we've had for the last 30 or 40 years, or should we be thinking hard about how to redesign our economic system so it didn't depend entirely on wasteful consumption and perpetual growth? Can't grow. Perpetual growth is the creed of the cancer cell. What kinds of discussions are taking place on a global level regarding these issues? Well, the scientific community, of course, the scholarly community is talking about it all the time. I just came back a couple of weeks ago from a meeting of the Bayer Institute of Ecological Economics in Sweden, where, among other people, we had Kenneth Arrow, who's a Nobel laureate in economics and a colleague that I've written with and so on. And there were top economists and top ecologists all absolutely appalled uh, that on the major issues, not only is nothing being done around the world, uh, but in the, and they're not even being discussed. In other words, we're focusing on utter trivia. Meanwhile, the, the doom of civilization is appearing over the horizon. I, mean, I know I'm not totally cheery, <laughs> but you know you can keep your internal environment in good shape by drinking while the external goes down. <laughs> but certainly some efforts have been made. I mean, uh, obviously, meetings on uh, climate change are certainly taking place. You know? Oh, yeah, meetings are taking place, but we have more greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere every year. I mean, a standard thing, of course, is to, hold, is to assign things to committee rather than doing something about them. I will be cheered on the climate front when we show substantial drops in the amount of greenhouse gas gases going into the environment. I mean, I mean really substantial ones. We really start, for instance, to reconvert the United States away from a country designed around automobiles to one designed around people. When we have very high gas taxes, when the subsidies are entirely off of the fossil fuel industries and switched over to solar, hydrogen, and things like that, then I'll be cheery. But you've you got to be very careful not to confuse talk and plans with actual action and results. Maybe in some ways this goes back to one of your first points, which is reevaluating our level of consumption. Yeah, I, I think people ought to be trained to ask themselves, what am I getting out of this consumption? Am I just being led to get, for instance, as our artifacts go, I love refrigerators because I like my beer cold and my white wine cold mm -hmm. also. But you can build a refrigerator that lasts 100 years and does a good job of keeping your beer and white wine cold, but you don't have to have a new designer refrigerator every year. I mean, after all, in the current crisis, the president gets up there and says, we all should go out and buy another SUV or buy another refrigerator. That's nuts. You know, one of the points in your, in your list of uh, recommendations is deciding what kind of world we want. What kind of world do you want? Well, I'd like to have a world, actually, we did a little study of this some years ago, where you had a maximum of options. I don't think the ideal world for me would be the ideal world for everybody, but I'd like to see a world with a population of eventually, and this we're talking 150, 200 years from now, maybe, with a, instead of seven or eight or nine billion people in it, just uh, one and a half or two, where you had more than enough people to have big active cities for people who like that, who want to go to opera, who love fine restaurants, and a lot of wilderness for people who wanted to be out of the wilderness and lead lives of hermits or be able to go look at wilderness and so on. In other words, I'd like to see a population size small enough that we have lots of options. If we could support 6 billion, we'd have to go back to 6. If we could support 6 billion, it would be sort of in a battery chicken lifestyle where everybody would have an absolute minimum of food, an absolute minimum of ability to move around and so on. That's not for me. Some people might like that. They might you know, feel that having a maximum number of people born is the critical issue and how, what kind of lives they live doesn't make any difference. That's, that's the kind of discussion we have to have because science can't tell you what kind of lifestyle you should have, but it can tell you what kind of lifestyles are possible for how many people under what circumstances. And fortunately, since we would not be getting down below 
even seven billion before next century, we would have a century to discuss and move as as the population dropped to ask where should we stop? Where would be the what would be a reasonable stable population? When you're looking at that at optimal population, you have to answer the questions that I just said. How many? Mm-hmm. But what you do know is we're way above the sustainable population today mm-hmm. with the technologies we have. In other words, the the most recent estimate I've seen is you'd need to to maintain the number of people we have now under optimistic assumptions over the long term. We need another point four. That is almost a half another Earth to do it, and we're not likely to get another half Earth to do it. Uh, I'm curious, how did you become interested in this whole issue? Well, I started, actually, my original interest wasn't directly in population. It was I was doing experiments with butterflies when I was a kid. And in New Jersey, I found that I couldn't raise them anymore because so much DDT had been sprayed around to try and control mosquitoes, which had not worked very well. And so I uh, started looking at these things when I was a high school student, and then I got very interested in the whole complex when I was an undergraduate at Penn in the late 40s, early 50s, when I was together with some very interesting people who are still friends who were veterans of the Second World War. And the whole issue of how many people the world could sustain and what the problems were had been brought to the surface by several books, and that's where my main interest came from. And then I got a, an assistantship to go to graduate school on naval research funds looking at the issue of the evolution of DDT resistance in pests. I've become more, I've become basically more pessimistic than I was in the old days because I've seen 50 years go by in which we basically haven't been attacking uh, most of the problems. The cheeriest thing that's happened has been the decline of birth rates in Europe uh, and many countries adopting population policies, but the idea that you can continue to consume without any worries has depressed me a lot. The fact that uh, we've discovered all sorts of things since I wrote The Population Bomb to show that the dominant animal, the topic of the latest book, is sawing off the the branch that it's sitting on. We are destroying our life support systems, and we've learned a lot more about that since the population bomb. And for instance, at the time of the population bomb, we thought carbon dioxide was the only warming problem in the climate. And it wasn't until 10 or 15 years later that scientists discovered the other half of the greenhouse forcing, the other gases like methane and fluorocarbons and so on, that, uh, that made the problem much worse. Just to close, if you have any uh, final words regarding this whole issue and maybe some recommendations. Well, I think the main recommendation is everybody ought to learn about these issues because whether they agree with me or not, and by the way, you'll note the dominant animal and all our other books are vetted by huge chunks of the scientific and scholarly communities. In other words, this isn't my view. If you go to www.dominantanimal.org and click on further information, you can see what the scientific community as a whole says. So get educated. We're social animals. Get together with your friends. Become politically active. You know, become active. Become interested. It's your life and that of your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren we're talking about. This. And I don't have a single colleague who doesn't agree with that view, not one. And I've been all over the country in uh, the last year. Indeed, indeed. And I think all, all very good words of advice. Uh, the new book is The Dominant Animal, Human Evolution, and the Environment. Professor Ehrlich, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. My great pleasure. And you were just listening to Professor Paul Ehrlich discussing The Dominant Animal. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. 
And I think to myself What a wonderful world I see skies of blue And clouds of white The bright blessed day The dark sacred night And I think to myself What a wonderful world Yes, I think to myself What a wonderful Here we go. It's uh, time for the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, are they a dominant animal or are they evolutionary dead end? So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, dominant animal or evolutionary failure, and a little reason why. Professor Ehrlich, ready to play the game? Well, I think the dominant animal is an evolutionary triumph, but there could be gigantic tragedy buried in our triumph. <laughs> okay, so you can you can couch the answers in however uh, way you want to. So, <laughs> is that is that a fair answer? That's that's a fair answer. So, all right, uh, person number one though, classified dominant animal or evolutionary uh, dead end, Donald Trump. Uh, now the, the the nature of the of the game has come clear to me. <laughs> Clearly, an evolutionary dead end, super consumer, and encouraging others to do so as well. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, number two is uh, talk show host Oprah Winfrey. Um, I, I think that she is a dominant animal because, among other things, she's encouraging people to read, and that's a rare sport in our society. So I would say she's a good communicator. We need lots of good communicators. Uh, number three is, of course, the famed conservationist Henry David Thoreau. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> One of the interesting things about cultural evolution is that you can learn from people who are dead. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Thoreau was a real pioneer and a wonderful writer, and I'm a great admirer of his, so clearly a dominant animal. All right. Uh, number four is former CEO of Microsoft, Bill Gates. Uh, more and more of a dominant animal because he's beginning to take his vast fortune and put it to uses that are very badly needed in things like international health. I'm told he's even acquiring an interest in, in climate disruption. So dominant animal. All right. And uh, finally, it's the outgoing president of the United States, George Bush. Uh, I thought we were only going to talk about people, you know, up, up, <laughs> upright hominids with very small brains. If you want to consider them people, then I would say evolutionary dead end. <laughs> I hope he's an evolutionary dead end. <laughs> All right. Well, Professor Ehrlich, I do want to thank you for sticking around playing the game. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad, glad to play the game. Hope you don't get fired over it. <laughs> All right. And, of course, the new book, again, is The Dominant Animal, Human Evolution, and the Environment. Thank you very much for your time. Sure. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. All right, we're back and we're ready for this week's question of the week. And of course, uh, once again, it's our very special guest, Forrest. Forrest, how are you doing? Good, Charles. Thank you, Charles. <laughs> well, Forrest Gump, I'm glad you joined us again. And uh, I'm curious, how many bones does an adult human have? You know, my mama used to say, bones are like a box of chocolates. You never know what you got to get. But you know what? There's actually 206 of them in an adult human. All right. Thanks a lot, Forrest. Thank you, Charles. 
And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok's, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.